When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello, Next Picture Show listeners. Here's a friendly reminder that if you enjoy the Next Picture Show, you'll really enjoy getting more Next Picture Show by subscribing to our Patreon. You can get our weekly newsletter for $3 a month and unlock bonus episodes for $5 a month. You also get ad-free versions of the podcast. And don't miss Feedback Fridays, when we carve out space to respond to your thoughts and questions. We recently released a bonus episode on must-see TV shows from 2021, and we have one coming up on Tasha and Keith's Sundance Experience. You can find it all at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. That's patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a Movie of the Week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here with... Genevieve Kosky. And Tasha Robinson. Keith Thipps is lost in Spiderweb Forest, which I think is what he calls his crawl space. Uh, but we're very excited to bring in a special guest, David Chen. David does videos, he does podcasts, he does looping cello versions of pop songs, he hosts the Filmcast, formerly the Slash Filmcast and the Tobolowski Files, and he also hosts the Culturally Relevant Podcast. We've been wanting to have him on the show for a long time, and here he is. Hello, David. Hello, Scott, and I just want to say I'm not only a guest co-host of the Next Picture Show podcast, I'm also a fan. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Thank you. David, given how many podcasts and projects you run, I can't believe that you made time to come here and talk to us, let alone that you have time in your life to listen to other people's podcasts. How <laughs> how do you do it? How do you keep up? Well, I think you should take it as a massive, A, vote of confidence, and B, a sense of uh, the stature all of you all hold in my brain. So, uh, big fan of all of your work for many, many years, and it's it's quite an honor to be here. Thank you so well, we're much. We're like really excited for, to have you here, sure. obviously. You know, sometimes we have to stretch a little bit to find a good pairing option with a movie we want to do. Uh, for example, it might have been natural to pair Jane Campion's The Power of the Dog with her film The Piano, given all their thematic connections. But we ha had already paired that film with Portrait of a Lady on Fire. And so the dueling banjos led us to Deliverance instead, a film that takes masculinity as a theme, but contrasts with Campion more often than it compares. Other weeks are simpler. When we locked in on Joel Cohen's new film, The Tragedy of Macbeth, the only question for us was, which Macbeth do we want? Yeah, you're calling curses down on us by calling oh, it by its name. Yes. It's, it's the Scottish <laughs> okay. play. 
So the the cursed Scottish play has been adapted uh, many times on film, very successfully by Orson Welles, Roman Polanski, and Justin Curzel. But while we have a lot of fun breaking down all of those filmmakers' choices, they're all more or less staying true to Shakespeare's play in the same way that Joel Cohen does. Which, you know, kind of makes sense. Shakespeare was a halfway decent writer. Yeah, he's not bad. Yeah, and we, we also prefer not to do one-to-one comparisons on the show. So there wasn't that much of a discussion over the right Macbeth for our purposes, which is Akira Kurosawa's 1957 classic Throne of Blood, which takes what it needs from Shakespeare while changing the language, the setting, and the performance style, and cherry-picking elements of the plot, too. So on this week's episode, we'll talk about Throne of Blood, and the free hand Kurosawa took in bringing Shakespeare into the world of feudal Japan. And then next week, we'll bring in Joel Cohen's The Tragedy of Macbeth, which follows the play closely while still fitting firmly within the Cohen filmography. Please stay with us. The Akira Kurosawa films Throne of Blood and Ron are separated by nearly 40 years. One was released in 1957, the other in 1985. One is shot in black and white, the other in color. They are based on two different Shakespeare plays, Macbeth and King Lear, and yet both are free adaptations set in castles perched high in the mountains, and both are about the tragic consequences of men who are atop those mountains, willing to sacrifice the lives of many to satisfy their own hubristic lust for power. And both end in the same way, with a kingdom falling needlessly into the chaos wrought by a mad leader. History repeats itself, and so too does Kurosawa. Of the many alterations Kurosawa made to Shakespeare's play for Throne of Blood, one of the most striking is an ending that's somehow bleaker than Shakespeare's, which may end in Macbeth's death, but promises the ascendance of a just and fair leadership in his place, a positive transition of power. Kurosawa's view is more nihilistic. History will keep on repeating itself in different places and in different centuries, in Scotland, in feudal Japan, and of course, in contemporary times, when a filmmaker like Kurosawa would not have been far removed from the millions of lives lost due to the murderous ambitions of the powerful. Throne of Blood is dictated by these inevitable, predetermined cycles of historic violence. The Japanese title translates as, quote, Castle of the Spider's Web, and the film is constantly reinforcing the idea that its Macbeth figure, Washizu, played by Tashira Mifune, is caught in a web that's not entirely of his own making. He may be a fierce samurai commander and warrior, successful on the battlefield, but he's a weak and passive Macbeth, easily seduced by an evil spirit, propelled into action by his wife, and rendered a fool in the end, grasping onto a prophecy that ultimately seals his fate. He may finally emerge from the cursed spiderweb forest that upends his sense of direction at the beginning of the film, but his mind and soul never leave. In Kurosawa's rendering of the play, Macbeth as General Washizu, and his fellow commander Banquo as General Miki, both waylaid in the forest in their triumphant return from the battlefield. They should know the territory well, but as Kurosawa films it, they're at the mercy of a supernatural force, galloping their horses madly in different directions through heavy rainfall. 
Then the rain stops suddenly, and they come upon a spirit in the forest. A single spirit as opposed to the three witches of Shakespeare's play. This cackling spirit makes her prophecy about Washizu becoming king and Miki's son succeeding him. And when they finally make it back to Lord Suzuki, the spirit's prediction about their subsequent promotions come true. So maybe the rest of the prophecy is also true, right? Washizu's wife, Asaji, played by Isuzu Yamada, certainly thinks so. One variable in adaptations of Macbeth is how much influence Lady Macbeth wields over her husband, or how much the tragedy that unfolds can be attached to his ambition. In Throne of Blood, the Lady Macbeth figure is exceptionally chilling, quietly taking the action that Washizu was reluctant to take. Were it not for Asaji, Washizu may have been content sitting back and allowing fate to deal the cards. And he doesn't seem at all disinclined to allow another man's son to be a successor, particularly since he and Asaji do not have a child. And maybe my favorite moment of the film, Kurosawa follows Asaji as she crosses the room to prepare poisoned wine for Suzuki's guards. And all we hear is the swishing fabric of her robe as she enters a room completely shrouded in darkness. It's a noir touch. Yet Throne of Blood doesn't emphasize Asaji's diabolical power so much as it continues to paint Washizu as fundamentally weak, despite his record on the battlefield. The world is full of dangerous leaders of weak character, and if there's any hope at all to a film as nihilistic as Kurosawa's, it's in the image of Washizu's men barraging him with friendly fire, realizing that they're being led by a deranged madman they once trusted with their lives. The tragedy of Kurosawa's Macbeth is he's only one such madman. There were many before him, there were many after him, and there will be many more to come. We'll talk about it after the break. So, uh, what did you think of Kurosawa's approach to Macbeth? Uh, David, let's uh, start with you. Well, first, Scott, I just want to start by complimenting you on that keynote uh, you just did. You know, I think you guys spoil your listeners. Uh, it's it's rare to get a, a criterion, you know, <laughs> collection quality essay at the beginning of every podcast, but you guys managed to deliver it on a consistent basis. So, I just want to say... If you out there listening to this show enjoyed that, you should probably let Scott know and all the other people know on this podcast. <laughs> wow. Um, is is right. David booking for a permanent fourth chair position here? Because I don't, I don't get this much flattery out of Keith, like, ever. So. No, that's true. Mm. No, Keith is pretty, but yeah. Moving, but yes, yeah, so that, that was very nicely done. And now I'm like, oh, my observations are but trash next to that. But <laughs> I will say, uh, what did I think of Kurosawa's approach to Macbeth? Uh, so I would say that it's obviously an amazing film, a classic, and there were a few things I was struck by as I was watching it. Number one, obviously the scale and ambition of the filmmaking remains impressive, particularly the final five to ten minutes of the film is just absolutely incredible, an all-timer 
you know, greatest sequence of all time kind of deal still retains a lot of power to this day. And I mean, it just it just looks incredible. Like it looks genuinely dangerous what they were attempting at the end there. And uh, it, it is really impressive. But per what you mentioned in your essay, I was also struck by how much more depressing this version of Macbeth is for an already depressing play. You know, it's already like pretty dark. It's not a real pick me up, but I would say what's gone is a lot of the humor that was in the original Macbeth, such as there were, you know, it wasn't that much humor to begin with. And in its place, there is even more tragedy. For example, what happens with the uh, equivalent of Lady Macbeth, right? Asaji Mm -hmm. in this uh, version, you know, with her child who is stillborn. And it kind of gives the ending of this version of Macbeth much more kind of tragedy, much more pathos than than other versions. Overall, I remain very impressed by the film. I really enjoyed watching it, and I'm really, really bummed out now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was. Uh, I wouldn't say I was dreading this pairing because, like, it's it's a good pairing and a, a classic film. An opportunity to see a classic film that I, I hadn't seen, so that's always good. But you know, Macbeth has never been my favorite. Shakespeare. I've I've read a lot of Shakespeare and I've seen a fair amount on stage. But um, you know, aside from it being very short by comparison to a lot of his his tragedies, it's just never one that's like really resonated with me as a as a story. Like I I, I get it and I get why it has stood the test of time. These themes, but I don't know. It's just um, it's just a lot of sound and fury signifying <laughs> exactly nothing. exactly. Thank you, thank you. But because of that, I was really, like David, struck by the filmmaking in Throne of Blood because uh, we didn't have the Shakespeare language, you know, to kind of, I feel like that's always what I home in on and Shakespeare adaptations. So, like, having that element not be a part of it was, I think, just a really interesting way to experience the story and, like, all of that poetry that it, you're not getting in the the dialogue I mean, I'm sure it's very poetic in in Japanese, but you know, I don't don't speak Japanese, so I'm reliant on the subtitles. All of that poetry I'm knocking in the dialogue, it's on screen, you know. And this is some really really cool filmmaking through, throughout. Like you already called out the last scene, all the stuff in the the forest with with the witch and just the sort of the practical effects uh, there. All the fog, so much fog, such good <laughs> fog in, the, in this movie, but. I think like the reason I w- I responded to all that is just like it's a cold movie and and purposely so you know I think we'll, we'll probably get into the no traditions on on display uh, soon but you know as I understand it that sort of like remove is kind of a big part of that tradition and you really feel it here this does feel you know a little presentational at least in its energy but the visuals are so lush and warm that I think it kind of creates a nice balance that I really responded to. Tasha, what do you think? Ah, oh, this film sucks. I don't know why people <laughs> Tasha, uh, like, why? like why, why do you have to be a contrarian on this Shakespeare film? or drama. <laughs> all the films to be a contrarian <laughs> Cinema, <laughs> the theater, all of these things. Very, very I think boring. she's funning us. <laughs> <laughs> what? I do have, uh, I, I would say I, I do maybe have minor quibbles with this, this version of Macbeth specifically Mostly in that, like, I've seen so many versions at this point of this play that it's almost hard sometimes to take as a story, as a a drama, as opposed to a kind of a like manufactured response to to the original play. Like, I find myself going into Macbeth's in a 
kind of detached, all right, well, how are they going to handle the big points? And here, making the Macbeth equivalent so weak that he doesn't even have, you know, the 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 famous dagger speech where he equivocates with himself, different actors play that different ways, different directors take that different ways. And it's kind of the crux of the movie, how much doubt he's actually feeling, whether he's trying to talk himself into it, whether he's experiencing the whole thing as a, a nightmare and chooses to believe that he's in kind of a waking dream, or he's just, you know, stealing himself up for something that he already knows he's going to do. It's played so many different ways. And I really feel the lack of that here. The fact that he just effectively steps off stage and then steps back on stage, yep, done, makes this this story almost a little emptier to me than some. You can't beat the pageantry here. You can't beat the ending. The cinematography is is stunning. The trees moving through the mists is like a, a, a vision out of nightmare. It's so visually compelling. I love the bookends that you know, like our little like no tradition, like here's the story we're going to tell you. Here's the story we just told you, but couched in very poetic language and in very like epic, like fabulistic, like folklore language. You know, here was here was once a proud king who fell through hubris. All of that stuff is uh, fantastic. And of course, we'll get into the performance. You cannot beat Tashira Mifune on screen for just about anything. But there are things that I like. I want to see Kurosawa's version of the dagger speech. I want to see the interiority of this character, maybe a little more than that presentational aspect we're we're talking about. And there were times that I did just kind of feel, like, okay, get on with it. Like we're we've we've been doing the same riding through this forest, like the same shots. I knew you. For I like knew it was going to be now. the riding through the forest shot. I knew it that was, was actually, the one you were going to call out. It was actually <laughs> less. <the> <laughs> No, no, no. Uh, I mean, at, at, at various times, they're just once again, kind of a, a feeling of like, move it along. Like, there's so much to get to in this play. There's there's so play. There's so much to get to in this movie. Why are you lingering so long on moments where we've already gotten the gist? Like when they're standing there watching the spirit, the spirit's singing her creepy little song. That song is so unsettling and the spirit's appearance is so unsettling and uncanny and the mist around them, like it all sets a mood. But then they just stand there and stand there and stand there and stand there and stand there. And you're looking at them from behind. You're not taking in whatever it is they're experiencing in that moment. And I kept thinking to myself, like, your warriors, your warriors confronted with the uncanny. Let's see what you're thinking here. So, you know, I, I suppose it is in my nature to uh, to quibble about the smallest things. But I also feel like we're never doing a film a, a full service if we're just like, yep, this is great. Everything about it's great. I think what you're talking about, at least in that scene, is not necessarily a flaw in the context of what the film uh, is is doing. And again, this goes back to the the no traditions and the masks and no are a really important part of the performances and the performance style we see here. And that sort of lack of showing us the interiority, because these are supposed to be archetypes. That is the the approach that is being taken to the to this story. And it's it's very different from the approach we'll see in Tragedy and Macbeth. Mm-hmm. And we can save that for, for, for next week. But I think like if you're thinking of this in terms of the project of this film, 
like we're not supposed to see what these characters are feeling or thinking you know we're supposed to kind of see what what they do and and what happens to them well that's just it like there were a number of places where i just wanted them to do something where i wanted them to <laughs> to get on with the doing of anything not in the places where the hesitation like at the the, the point where uh, wazi show and miki sit down together outside the castle and they're exhausted from riding and neither of them is really ready to go in and then they start sort of trying to talk around the prophecy and they then they both stop and they're like no you were going to say something cuz neither one of them wants to to broach the subject the the pause is there and the the space there the silence is there it's all golden that is character based storytelling every pause there is important when we're just standing there watching their backs for a very long time like it just doesn't seem as much like we are seeing them as archetypes or characters we're just waiting for them to have any kind of response I just I had to call out that scene where they sit there and talk to each other, though, because that there's so yeah. much gold in this movie. But that moment where they're they're both <laughs> these these warriors that yeah. just want to battle are both just like, no, 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 you go first. It, it may be my favorite <laughs> thing in the movie. So but you, you, and you're not saying just get to the whatever, get to the king or get to the, get to the Lord, <laughs> you know, get it moving. I'm, I'm losing patience. That no, wasn't what because you're they're, they're telling us things. Here is my thing. I think I bring up pacing a lot. And I think it just effectively comes to, are we learning anything from this repetition? Are we learning anything from this pause? Are we, are we sitting in this moment to feel this moment? That's fine. But if we've seen and, and felt everything that we're meant to see and feel and then we're just sitting there, that's where I start to to kind of feel like, eh, give me five minutes of Mitchell's versus the machines where nobody ever takes a breath to, to experience anything for any period of time. Oh, like, wow. um, just, uh, that's stunning. I mean, I'm, you know, I don't want to jump ahead to our next review, but I would ar- I would argue that the tragedy of Macbeth actually suffers from the opposite problem where there's no time at all to breathe. And I do think it's interesting the way both of these movies play with time, um, because I think that theoretically Macbeth, the play, is supposed to take place over the course of like many years, if I'm not mistaken, right? And this movie, Throne of Blood, only takes place over the course of like six months or nine months or so, right? If I'm not mistaken, or something along much shorter time frame, as far as I can tell. But uh, let me just register my discontent with what Tasha just said and say that, like, I, I, are I you would excited say, to get to disagree with Tasha, David? David is I'm so excited. I'm just going to sit back here and watch it happen. <laughs> um, point number one: If Throne of Blood came out in 2021. It would be one of the shortest movies of the year. Um, so just like there have been so many movies that have been two and a half hours long in 2021, I feel I've seen. Um, so I'm, I'm impressed with the brevity of the movie, quite frankly. Point number two, I think there are more times than not when we are just feeling the moment as you describe. So example, the two of them, Washitsu and um, his buddy. Miki. Miki. Uh, Miki, right. They get lost after coming out of the forest. For what seems like thirty minutes. Yes, um, that's what. But that's it, the scene I thought Tasha was right, going right, to bring right. up. But, yeah, but I mean, that, that's just like that's bold decision to like have them be lost <laughs> for like you know what seems like forever. And on the one hand, it's not the pace of movie I'm used to these days. But on the other hand, it's like you know what. I'm okay. I'm going to be cool with being lost in the forest for five minutes. It is disorienting out there. It must be confusing and discombobulating. And I think there's more of those moments where I feel like the pacing is justified than not. I'm not going to say I never felt restless watching the film, but 
I will defend the pacing as like mostly creating a mood or a feeling for me. Them riding back and forth through the fog was, or through the mist. I don't know. Is it fog or mist? What's the what's the distinction? Um, I think I think fog. I think I think Kurosawa mostly refers to it as fog in interviews and stuff like that. So oh, okay, yeah. all right. That, that's, I, I actually think that the distinction is that mist is low lying and uh, like fog stretches upward. Are there gorillas in them? If there's gorillas, <laughs> if there's gorillas it's, it's definitely yes. a mist. Okay, no, good call. Okay, good call. all right. Um, through the vapor, I guess, as they're, okay. as they're, they're riding back and forth. I, like, I definitely like felt a little restless at that point, too, because as, as you say, it's like not the type of pacing we're, we're used to in this Mitchell's versus the, the machine's age. And I, I do get like the argument of living in that moment. I think in honor of Tasha, I will quibble a little bit with that. And just I think what kind of bothered me a little bit about that back and forth uh, lost in the forest is that it was just the same variation on the same shot over and over again. There, mm-hmm, it was it was mm-hmm, the same mm-hmm. thing. And I w- guess I would have liked just a little more dynamism to their being lost, you know, because it did after like the fifth repetition feel a, a little bit like I was being trolled. Uh, but again, that is like a modern sensibility, bringing a modern sensibility to mm. this. But or, that, or perhaps it's a feature, not a bug, you know? Yeah, perhaps, yes. per, perhaps it's a feature, not a bug. Maybe. Yes, but, I I, but, but I've officially I, registered I my quibble. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> what I'm actually hearing here is that, that y'all are casting me as the villain, but you both did in fact get restless with the pacing of this movie. I think we all had the same experience. I'm just the one calling it out. And as you say, there are there are plenty of uh, plenty of sequences in here where the pause is for. That I'll I'll also call out the the moment where uh, Wazishu is heading into his his wife's room, and he pauses in the corridor, and some of the handmaidens bump into him and are then are horrified to see him and get down on their knees and kowtow to him. And he hesitates and then he makes himself step forward and then a couple more of them bump into him and are horrified to see him and bow down before him and he hesitates and then he steps forward and then he sees the like the old midwife uh, and she's horrified to see him and she bows to him and he hesitates and steps forward. Every one of those steps is important. Every one of those moments is important and it builds the tension and builds and builds the tension. And then he stands, yeah, yeah. he stands in the open doorway looking at, at his wife's unfolded kimono and unable to see what's, what's triggered all of this reaction. Not a single second of that waiting is wasted. All of it is important. I'm just I'm talking about exactly what you're talking about the the moments where you start to feel restless because you're like okay yes we, they're riding through the forest and they're lost because it is a veritable natural labyrinth as we've said eight times we get it <laughs> building tension versus repeating himself the, yep. this is the distinction but you're right it's just a it's a modern sensibility thing yeah I have to say stepping back I mean like you know Keith and I did a whole Macbeth series on uh, for the reveal we saw like a bunch of Macbeth movies, all the the, the Wells, the the Polanski, the Kurzel, this. Uh, we did Scotland, PA. We did the whole thing, <laughs> and I, and my reaction to this film was just a sense of feeling liberated in a way. I mean, like, uh, it, you know, and, and there was I, I felt this a little bit weirdly. If I'm just going to make an analogy with with uh, what Tony Kushner did with West Side Story, is just like here is a film that is in dialogue with something else. It's not a, it's not adapting it. It's not a straight adaptation. That's not really the conceit there, but it's like, I'm going to, I, I, you know, Kurosawa is like, I'm going to take what I want from this thing. I'm going to take what I want, what I want from history of feudal Japan. I'm going to take, I'm going to, I'm going to take what I need from no theater from 
you know, Western cinematic traditions from Japanese cinematic traditions. And I'm going to put all that together. That's, that's what Kurosawa does. That's why he's a, a great master is because he's, he's, he, he isn't, he is a mixologist. He draws from many traditions and many, you know, literary and filmic, et cetera. And, and, and to me, just the experience of, of watching Throne of Blood was just constantly dazzling and liberating and fun. I just think like there's something, you know, as, as bleak as this movie is, you know, on a filmmaking level, it's just so full of surprises and, and, and little distinctive touches just on a pure filmmaking level and a performance level, my God, um, that made it by far the most exciting of the, of the Macbeth you know, stories that I saw, even though, of course, it is not really, you know, a straight up uh, version of that uh, story. So I, so I do cut it quite a bit of slack in terms of a- any little hiccups and pacing. I, I just felt pretty thoroughly mesmerized by it from start to finish. Plus one. Plus one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just like, yeah. It's just like that scene I described yeah. with Asaji and the actress uh, Asuzu Yamada. What a chilling <laughs> depiction of that character. Mm-hmm. What an incredible scene where she just understands the prophecy the way she understands it and takes action because he's not going to and for kurosawa to isolate the sound as he as he does and just lets us hear that the the swishing of that robe as she as she walks to have her go into this room that's completely dark to make this concoction that she does just that entire sequence and the way it plays out with the guards i mean that is phenomenal filmmaking uh and uh, and again just uh, these are just really strong choices i mean that's what you want from from you know the truly great filmmakers is is them to draw your eye or your ear uh or both in a in a really specific way in a very distinctive way and this film is loaded with moments like that yeah i was glad you called out the the swishing in the <laughs> keynote because that was definitely one that uh stuck out to me uh, on my first viewing, and I'm a little embarrassed to admit that I I did find it a little funny, while also like definitely recognizing like the the power it had. But I, I don't know, like maybe just like I, I was thinking of like corduroys swishing together the whole, the whole time. <laughs> I, I actually got a real I got a real humorous vibe from it too. Like it could okay. have been read as a comedy where she's like, "All right, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna go do this thing. You decide yeah. what you want to do." You know, but I'm just gonna go drug the wine, and if if you want to do it, maybe as a goof you can, you know. But like, you know, and, and I was just there is this kind of like comedic element to it, like, all right, I'm just gonna noisily get the wine now, you know, yeah. like. But at the same time, it is, you know, I, I don't know if it was intentionally comedic, but it could be read that way. It is also obviously extremely upsetting. So yeah. I mean, at the same time, you 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 mentioned David the idea of the humor being taken out of this uh, the version the play and uh, you know obviously I, I agree with you about removing the expressly comedic characters and, and comedic business and dick jokes which are a big part of uh, Shakespeare's original text <laughs> totally but totally. that opening Always. sequence I, I read it as pretty funny the way you know the the a messenger gallops in and everybody in the court like sits up and is very excited and they're like terrible news we're losing the war and they're like should we do something about that no, too dangerous. We're just going to stay here. And then somebody else comes galloping in and says, great gonna news. going to stay here and manspread. <laughs> oh, my God. The man, the, well, you'd manspread, too, if you had to sit in those chairs. Look, hugely uncomfortable. Right. And difficult to balance in while wearing that much armor. Yeah. I, I agree that there are moments that like could be perceived as humorous. And it's unclear to me like how intentional it was. Maybe it was intentional, you know. Um, but, yeah, I, I definitely like got a laugh out of some moments as well, even though it didn't feel like... That was what I was supposed to be feeling at that moment. 
I I don't know. I I think his head advisor uh, saying, oh, yeah, that very, very important to go fight the war, but we really should stay here because uh, it's very, very dangerous out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, that reads is very funny to mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. No, that's you fair know, enough. He's, that's fair enough. Yeah, yeah. there's I, I just I feel like there's a thread of humor throughout the whole thing in terms of uh, advisors, in terms of advice being given and weak men looking for other people mm. to lead. I think the sequence between uh, Dwaza Show and Miki that I called out, where both of them try to get the other to talk first, that's that's meant to be funny. That, mm-hmm. that you, you, I don't see how you can read that as not funny. I think that's true, yeah. And you know what? What else comes to mind is I was really surprised at the dynamic between Asagi and Washizu in this movie. I think because... We have such an idea of Lady Macbeth as a concept in our culture, right? Like, Lady Macbeth is like, you know, the woman pulling the strings behind the scenes and so on and so forth. She clearly drives a lot of action here in this movie, so I'm not saying she doesn't do that. But I found a lot of her dialogue to be, like, mostly, like, undermining whatever Washizu was saying. You know what I mean? Like, it wasn't like, you gotta do this thing because it's the best thing to do, you know? It was mostly like, Washizu's like, well, like, he assigned me the best gig of, uh, you know, I'm gonna attack this other guy. And she's like, well, he did that to kill you. You know, like, <laughs> she's, she's, like, just kind of, like, needling him through the entire thing and kind of, like, undercutting him. And I thought that was, like, really interesting. The performance is really interesting. And because the affect is flat for a lot of the time, when she springs into action, Mm. right, when the murder happens uh, towards the end of the movie for the equivalent of the out damn spot scene, it is really effective because she's been, like, really quiet and calm for, like, the first, you know, third of the film. So, yeah, I do think that that dynamic is there of, like, weak men being easily influenced by others and uh and that being very much like a part of the dynamic of the the main two characters in the film so well there's a lot more to talk about with these uh two characters and in the no style and and plenty of other things uh we will do so after a break So this dynamic between Washizu and Asagi, the Macbeth and Lady Macbeth characters in this film, it's very interesting and, and maybe and, you know often a little different from some adaptations of Macbeth. So I want to kind of dig into that a little bit more. Do you feel? Did you feel? I guess my, that my observation about that dynamic was correct <laughs> when I when I talked about the keynote, or, or or like did I did I did I get it right, guys? When I talked about it before, you have just decided that uh, David David being the most complimentary guest we've ever had, you're going to take did advantage I, I of you, it. You, you gave a mouse him. a cookie, David. <laughs> <laughs> you you nailed it, Scott. You nailed Thank it. You. Uh, I, I think what's interesting about the Asaji character. Like my perception of her, and I'm curious what you guys think of this, is like she felt simultaneously more passive and more active than other versions of Lady Macbeth I've seen. More passive in the terms of the language. Like she's very like, as I said earlier, very kind of like undermining, undercutting, just like, hey, like maybe think about it this way. Maybe think about if your friend is going to kill you instead of not killing you. You know, like maybe just consider it a little bit. And so, like, very kind of, like, passive in that way, you know, not as, like, bold with the pronouncements as Lady Macbeth in the play, but more active in the sense that, like, she physically places the implement into Washizu's hand, and, like, without that, you you get the sense he might not have even done it without her, right? Which I don't necessarily feel is the case with, like, the original Macbeth play. Like, Macbeth... 
I could see that guy potentially like doing that on his own with like minor encouragement. But here she like she has to like maybe if she hit, hadn't placed the weapon in his hand, he wouldn't have done it in this one. You know, it was the, the feeling I got. So absolutely, uh, yeah. And that that actually brings me to another point, which is you know does the you know when you get to the equivalent of the out damn spot soliloquy because Asagi has been a more active player uh, than in other versions of Macbeth. Does the, does the tragedy of that moment ring is true for you? I mean, because, you know, again, to me, having seen all of these Macbeths, like the out damn spot soliloquy in the Justin Kurzel version is just heartbreaking. <laughs> and that that's, um, what's the actress's name? Uh, Marion Cotillard. Cotillard. Yeah. Phenomenal, phenomenal reading of it. And, and very unusual, I think, too. But but also something that the film sets up because it's a more active Macbeth. So so I was curious if you, if you shared my perception on that. Well, I think that, again, what's interesting about the character of Asaji's arc in this movie is that they give her a child in this movie, right? And so she has a stillborn child and that just makes her story like even more tragic at the end. Like you, you get the sense that, I don't know, like the play is maybe opening up the interpretation, I'm sorry, the movie Throne of Blood is opening up this interpretation that maybe like the evil things that she did have like polluted herself in some way. And like that the madness that she goes through is a combination of both guilt at the terrible deeds she's done and also the loss of her child, right? And I feel like as a result, it just feels, you know, way more tragic and sad because of that. It's a very interesting decision to do it that way, I think. And arguably more emotionally manipulative, but, you know, uh, (laughs) effective nonetheless. I mean, there's also a degree to which uh, the madness could be precipitated by feeling that she did all of this and it it caused the miscarriage in some way, you know, right. karmically. That's, yeah, that's kind of what I was trying to indicate is like, or, yeah, like, yeah. You know, that she did all of this to no end, but because exactly. the whole point of doing it was, you know, for her heir. Yeah. I'm going to say this and, and nobody's going to like it. Uh, <laughs> Lady Macbeth's <laughs> madness is, has always been my biggest problem with this play. Mm-hmm. Me too, Tasha. We're together. I'm right. at Nobody likes Yay. it except Genevieve. <laughs> and this is, this I don't, is I don't the not like it. <laughs> It's a big big turn. Movie, uh, it's it's just so abrupt, Mm -hmm. and and movies necessarily cut the play down, so the the movie won't be four hours. And her arc is generally the thing that most goes. You you go so quickly from uh, dashing a baby to the ground and wishing she was a man so she could go murder some dudes to. I'm a murderess and this is the worst thing in the world. And sometimes there's no space between those things. Mm-hmm. And here, having stillborn child gives you enough sort of hooks and elements to justify it to yourself. But it still just feels so abrupt. You know, mm-hmm. it, it still o- feels, almost like, feels like maybe you could use a few extra meditative scenes of nature <laughs> interspersed in there to give you the a sense of the flow of time. Tasha, what do you think? Well, I mean, kind of to your point, like, I mean, I think one of the reasons it does feel abrupt is we go pretty quickly from I am having a baby to the baby is stillborn. Like, there's no real time for us to sit right. with the possibility of what that baby represents to the, to these two. Mm-hmm. And we also don't... And again, this kind of goes back to the film's overall lack of, like, 
engaging with these characters emotions or interiority but we really don't like see much of what it means to them as a couple i know that couple is like very different in this context than our our modern association of it but like it feels that the baby or the possibility of a baby feels very much like a plot device here you know and so the way that it is resolved also feels very plotty it's executed well and in the context of the whole story is yes very very tragic but you don't have the sort of emotional component that i guess we do get with Lady Macbeth's arc more traditionally, but not in a way I like either. <laughs> not, I mean, not often, though. Filmmakers very rarely seem yeah. to take the time because they they don't care about uh, Lady Macbeth. You know, the, the points of Lady Macbeth's story are precipitate the action and pay for her her villainy basically and very few filmmakers seem interested in the space in between Mm -hmm. which is the space in which a a woman completely changes her personality and is destroyed and that's just something that seems i don't know important if if you don't (laughs) want a story that seems very contrived no matter how emotional that that eventual breakdown is so I, w- I want to like take another little step back here and talk about some important part of the film, which is which is the the no theater tradition. I mean that, that accounts for many elements of the film: the, the the minimalism of the settings, the chorus that sort of bookends the film, and it's also a big big part of the performances, uh, particularly to to share Mafune's performance uh, with the whole thing about his you know facial expressions or the actor's facial expressions meaning to resemble a mask. How did that style work for you? Did it did it feel uh, natural? Did it feel was it something you had to kind of get used to? Did you appreciate the execution of it when you kind of found your bearings? I'm curious to know. As as somebody like with all the quibbles, I just want to jump in on this one and say I love it. I love it so uh-huh. much. <laughs> I, I never get tired of Buffini's performances. I never get tired of how big his physicality is, how how big his acting is. And here, it's not just the facial expressions. It's not just the the presentation, the performance. It's also the makeup. The makeup is very mm-hmm. mask like, and especially from a distance, it does make him look very much like he's wearing those traditional masks. And, you know, uh, Dasaji also looks like a, a no character. The spirit very much looks like a no character. And it, it puts it all into a, a kind of a fable-ish place where some of these things maybe make a little more sense. I really enjoy the stylization of it. But I also enjoy just what a a creature out of folklore this version of Macbeth is. Just this this roaring blowhard who in private lets his wife like quietly logic him out of everything he cares about, everything he believes in. She just she prisoners dilemmas him throughout this movie and he's not smart enough to see around it. And it's because he's this big, loud, macho bear character that is not about intellectualism. It's not about thinking through things. It's about acting. And she just tells him like, okay, but if you act in the direction that you've always acted, you're going to die and we're all going to die. He's a warrior. He he's a he's a rule follower. He's he he respects the chain of command. I mean, nothing nothing that the actions that he ends up taking, you know, are so you know counterintuitive to the extreme for him. And um, and I, and I just I I love the, the, the Mafuni performance. I mean, it's one. Yeah, I don't know. It's hard to say it's one of its best because he's always great. But like the banquet scene in this one where he sees uh, the ghost, I guess, of his former comrade in arms. 
I mean, just again, that facial expression is so powerful. And again, you know, and it's a scene that is from Macbeth. It is, it is a, a, an important scene in every version that you see. And it's, and I think in that moment that it is Mafune's face that really kind of like crystallizes the whole thing for you. Speaking of that scene, by the way, also another scene that I felt could have been like mildly comedic when he's like, I'm going to kill you again. And everyone's like, again, what? Yeah. <laughs> he does a very horrible. That's another th- funny thing about the Macbeth adaptations. It's just like, you know, Lady Macbeth be that's like the degree to which yeah. she's just completely revealing herself. And she's like, oh, uh, mm, no. Yeah, exactly. So I was going to comment also on the idea of there's no tradition, you know. Scott, I'm guessing you did meticulous research for your essay, so I don't want to tell a bear how to poop in the woods here, but (laughs) I did have a chance to check out Stephen Prince's Criterion essay called Shakespeare Transposed. And uh, what'd you say? I said good essay. I also yeah, read great. it. Oh, one of the best. <laughs> Almost as good as Scott's essay at the beginning of this podcast. Oh, terrible, um, terrible. No, the, very, uh, no. And one of the things that struck me about this essay was, quote, quote, no is not psychologically oriented. Its characters are not individualized. They are types. The old man, mm-hmm. the woman, the warrior, and so on. And the plays are quite didactic, aiming to impart a lesson. Kurosawa, therefore, strips all the psychology out of Macbeth, and gives us a film whose characters are no types and where emotions, the province of character in the drama of the West, are formally embodied in landscape and weather, end quote. Putting aside the landscape and weather point, I think the idea of just like the no effect is to kind of make these characters into more like archetypes and allow you to kind of read into them. You know, I think Tasha put it beautifully about this being very fable-esque. And so it, it did kind of have that feeling to me too of like, they're not really humans with a bunch of interiority, there are people who are like influenced by all these things that are that are going around around them, largely reactive. I felt in a way uh, that I didn't necessarily feel with other uh, versions of this play. So well, I mean, Our Lady Macbeth is the the exception there. Like, I definitely have to quibble with a description of the movie as devoid of psychology. That's is a great. Well, I said it was almost as good as Scott's essay. Did I not? Uh, fair enough. <laughs> but I, I mean, as as I as I said earlier, her her weaponizing of uh, of the prisoner's dilemma. Uh, I think is a, a kind of a masterful work of psychology. He just he ends up doing mm. the uh, I, I can't choose the chalice in front of you or the chalice in front of me. I guess I should just I should do whatever you say because that's that's the only choice I have here. I you know and I as I say I miss his psychology. I, I miss the dagger speech and, and the contemplation of the act. But I, yeah, we may be devoid of his psychology. I, I really don't think we're devoid of hers. That's a fair point. Fair point. But we only get hers in relation true. to him. So, uh, yes, I also uh, read that essay and highlighted that exact passage, <laughs> David. So, uh, so we, we won't uh, uh, dwell on that. But uh, before we leave the topic of the no influence here, I also just want to bring up the fact that it is a, a form in which movement and dance is very important. And I think that we see uh, that expressed here. And there, there's some very dancerly movement uh, in in the way people move through the frame in, in this film. I One like really, really small moment that, that stuck out to me is when um, the, early in the film when the two guards are going into the, the blood-stained <laughs> room to prepare it for their master and they're holding these like candles or like lit torches and their arms are like exactly, exactly aligned. It's like the, the exact perfect angle. And I don't know if that was, you know, done on purpose but there, I think it just really encapsulates how much specificity and nuance there is in the movement or, or that one shot of 
Wasiju like walking where uh, like a tracking shot where we're like following his feet and like the way his feet move is very specific, like the the feet placement. So I think we're seeing I, I don't know enough about no theater to like get really in depth there, but it's a sort of a sense I have in the way that these actors are are moving is also kind of paying homage to those traditions. The one that strikes me in that vein, the one that really caught me watching this film again this time, is when the the Lord's people come to the castle. And the guards call out to Wazisha to to let him know that the the Lord's men are coming, which he's just finished listening to his wife tell him, you know, if Miki says this and this and this, the Lord will come here and kill you. So you see him run barefoot. Like he 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 kind of mm-hmm. pokes his head out of the chamber where he's talking to his wife. He runs back in barefoot. He runs back out barefoot with his sword now. And then he comes running towards the frame, still barefoot, through the dust to the gate where he's surrounded by his men who array themselves around him. And all of that is just it's it's visually beautiful, but it's also just a little a little staggering watching this great warrior in his armor uh, go rushing through the dust barefoot uh, in in just a, a panic about what's going to happen next. Yeah, I, I uh, again, through my very light research, I uh, as I understand it, that sort of contrast between stillness and explosive motion is sort of another hallmark of no theater. So I think that scene in particular is a good example of that. So b- before we sort of piece out of this portion of the, the, the show, I, I really want to kind of ask you about you know one extremely important change that kurosawa has made from shakespeare which is the end of the film what did you make of his decision to have macbeth felled by friendly fire rather than the vengeful equivalent to macduff i, I thought it was cool it amps up- <laughs> oh sorry go ahead <laughs> no, I just, no i was just and being how glib. awesome did you think it was <laughs> i thought it was super awesome. How awesome do you think scott is not that that's relevant but we do keep returning no, to I, it i'm just saying i'm gonna i'm gonna put it all on kurosawa here i think he did a great job that was a really smart choice <laughs> i think um one interesting thing it does is it kind of makes washizu slash macbeth's downfall even more the result of his arrogance right mm-hmm. because I think my interpretation watching the movie is he go he gives a speech. He's like, guys, guess what? I went, I met this witch person in the woods <laughs> and she told me, they're like, I can't be felled unless the forest starts moving. So we're good, guys. We're good. I love it. And I'm yeah. like, what are you doing, man? You're telling them the one thing that you can't experience or else it's going to go really badly. This is almost uh, as bad as when you said you'd kill him a second time. Just <laughs> yeah, I, I love that part. I love that part of, uh, again, Watching all these Macbeths, I always like to see just like what the reaction, like the level of like, <laughs> oh, come on. The right, forest right. didn't go anywhere. I'm, this is great. I'm fine. The <laughs> At least the other Macbeths had the decency to hide this nonsense from their men. You know, right, like, well, there's, yeah. that too, there's that part of it too. But he, <laughs> and but in I, this but one, he tells his a, men. So, of course, they start getting freaked out when, you know, uh, right. they start seeing the forest move. And so I feel like because he told his men. That's oh, yes, why that's they true. like run away. That's important, yeah. And then they end up shooting him because they're like, this thing is lost. So I feel like the net effect is it makes it more a result of his arrogance. Right. Which, you know, is, is, is well done. And it's also an exceptionally well done sequence. But yeah, it's also like kind of a really sad way to go out, you know, compared to like other Macbeths. You know, like uh, other Macbeths ha- have 
It's all very undignified. How your head cut off. Undignified right, exactly. is, is a really good way to put it. He right. He he's yeah. running back and forth like a rat caught in a trap. Like he there's yes. nowhere for him to Painful. go, and you just see his his avenue of escape cut off over and over and over. I do think that it. I I'm assuming it's not meant to be comedic. I'm afraid that I do end up seeing it as a little comedic, just because mm-hmm. there's so many arrows. He gets he gets <laughs> yeah. shot so many times. It's like yeah. the machine gun equivalent of arrows. <laughs> just, and I know we, just keep we've, coming. we've just seen that that vast army. Like we know that they can definitely shoot that many arrows. It's not even implausible, but it, it just happens over and over and over. And he's becoming more and more of a pin cushion. There's like some real Boromir uh, action going on there. I, <laughs> uh, surely Peter Jackson must have been thinking of this sequence when he directed Boromir's mm. death. And it's like, oh, the, the, oh, he's taken 35 more arrows. That's probably going to be what does it. Nope. Nope. He's getting up again. Very, very poor arrow control laws happening in uh, feudal Japan. Yes. Like the magazine, like there's no limits in terms of uh, magazines. Of, See, the uh, problem is you restrict the bows, but not the arrows. <laughs> and then you just have people hucking arrows at you all day. It's it's terrible. I do think it's it's interesting, though, that there's that first arrow that's shot at him that very clearly emboldens them and, and gives them the idea. Mm-hmm. But it isn't until they've started volleying him with arrows that somebody from the crowd shouts, who killed our Lord in the first place? And he mm-hmm. doesn't have an answer to that. Like, he he makes the big, like, no mask facial expression of, my God, I've been caught. And it, but it's very clear that he he doesn't have an answer, and that's why the rest of them turn. They're f- afraid for their lives. They're afraid of what's going to happen when the enemy army shows up. But they also see in that moment that here's a man who is has committed murder, has gone mad, is consorting with evil spirits, has prophesied his own doom. Yeah, of course they're going to shoot him. But it still it still takes that one man speaking up and saying, okay, but we know what you did, don't we? That's mm-hmm. what turns the tide. And that's, I think, what turns this. It plays a little farcically, but... Yeah, it's it's still just so heavy. It's such a great decision. I'm I'm glad not every uh, Macbeth director makes that choice, but here it just feels so right. I think what you're saying is that Throne of Blood is a stirring tribute to the power of descent. If I'm if I'm hearing you correctly, <laughs> no, no, a stirring tribute to the uh, the power of murder. Just standing <laughs> up and like murdering the hell out of people you don't like. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Amen. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, so we'll have a chance to compare and contrast uh, uh, Macbeth deaths uh, in the next episode. For now, you know we've moved our feedback section to open posts every Friday on our Patreon, which you can access for free. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this discussion of Throne of Blood. Next week's discussion on the tragedy of Macbeth or anything else you'd like to talk about, email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. If you want to share any of your responses with us and the other listeners. That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In our next episode, we'll compare Throne of Blood, which you can watch now on Criterion Channel or HBO Max, with Joel Cohen's The Tragedy of Macbeth, which is currently on Apple TV+. Look for that episode next Tuesday on your podcatcher of choice. For ad-free versions of the podcast and extra content, including letters from other listeners, find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. We're also at nextpictureshow.net and on Twitter at nextpicturepod if you want to keep track of when new episodes drop. 
Hey, I'm just going to interrupt your outro and say, uh, subscribe to the Patreon. I'm a subscriber, <laughs> and it's worth it. Okay, continue. I really thought that, you were just going to break never in had a guest. to, to comment his stump, uh, stump for the show. Reading. Like, uh, the reading of this is, is exquisite, but I'll keep going. <laughs> until, until next week, you outdoorsy types can relax and stay in your homes. The forest will come to you. 